Chapter sixty three of Is He Popenjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Strigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Is He Popenjoy? by Anthony Trollope. Chapter sixty three Popenjoy is born and christened. At last, not much above a week after the calculations, in all the glory of the purple of Manor Cross, the new Popenjoy was born. For it was a Popenjoy. The fates, who had for some time past been unpropitious to the house of Brotherton, now smiled. And Fortune, who had been good to the dean throughout, remained true to him also in this. The family had a new heir, a real Popenjoy, and the old Marchioness, when the baby was shown to her for a while, forgot her sorrows, and triumphed with the rest. The dean's anxiety had been so great that he had insisted on remaining at the house. It had been found impossible to refuse such a request made at such a time. And now, at last, the ladies at Manor Cross gradually forgave the dean his offences. To the old dowager they did not mention his name, and she probably forgot his existence, but the Marquis appeared to live with him on terms of perfect friendship, and the sisters succumbed to the circumstances, and allowed themselves to talk to him as though he were in truth the father of the reigning Marchioness. It will be understood that for forty-eight hours before the birth of the child, and for forty-eight hours afterwards, all Manor Cross was moved in the matter, as though this were the first male child born into the world since the installation of some new golden age. It was a great thing that, after all the recent troubles, a Popenjoy, a proper Popenjoy, should be born at Matter Cross of English parents, a healthy boy, a bouncing little lord, as Mrs. Toff called him, and the advent almost justified the prophetic spirit in which his grandmother spoke of this new advent. "'Little angel,' she said, "'I know he'll grow up to bring new honours to the family, and do as much for it as his great-grandfather.' The great-grandfather spoken of had been an earl, great in borough-mongery, and had been made a marquis by Pitt on the score of his votes. "'George,' she went on to say, "'I do hope there will be bells and bonfires, and that the tenants will be allowed to see him.' There were bells and bonfires, but in these days tenants are perhaps busier men than formerly, and have less in them certainly of the spirit of heir-worship than their fathers.' But Mr. Price, with his bride, did come down and see the baby, on which occasion the gallant husband bade his wife remember that although they had been married more than twelve months after Lord George, their baby would only be three months younger. Whereupon Mrs. Price boxed her husband's ears, to the great delight of Mrs. Toff, who was dispensing sherry and cherry brandy in her own sitting-room. The dean's joy, though less ecstatic in its expression, was quite as deep and quite as triumphant as that of the Marchioness. When he was admitted for a moment to his daughter's bedside, the tears rolled down his face as he prayed for a blessing for her and her baby. Lady Sarah was in the room and began to doubt whether she had read the man's character aright. There was an ineffable tenderness about him, a sweetness of manners, a low melody of voice, a gracious solemnity in which piety seemed to be mingled with his love and happiness. That he was an affectionate father had been always known, but now it had to be confessed that he bore himself 
as though he had sprung from some noble family, or been the son and grandson of archbishops. How it would have been with him on such an occasion had his daughter married some vicar of Pugsty, as she had herself once suggested, Lady Sarah did not now stop to inquire. It was reasonable to Lady Sarah that the coming of a Popenjoy should be hailed with greater joy and receive a warmer welcome than the birth of any ordinary baby. "'You have had a good deal to bear, Brotherton,' he said, holding his noble son-in-law by the hand. "'But I think that this will compensate for it all.' The tears were still in his eyes, and they were true tears, tears of most unaffected joy. He had seen the happy day, and as he told himself in words which would have been profane had they been absolutely uttered, he was now ready to die in peace. Not that he meant to die, or thought that he should die. That vision of young Popenjoy, bright as a star, beautiful as a young Apollo, with all the golden glories of the aristocracy upon his head, standing up in the House of Commons, and speaking to the world at large with modest but assured eloquence, while he himself occupied some corner in the gallery, was still before his eyes. After all, who shall say that the man was selfish? He was contented to shine with a reflected honour. Though he was wealthy, he never desired grand doings at the deanery. In his own habits he was simple. The happiness of his life had been to see his daughter happy. His very soul had smiled within him when she had smiled in his presence. But he had been subject to one weakness, which had marred a manliness which would otherwise have been great. He who should have been proud of the lowliness of his birth, and have known that the brightest feather in his cap was the fact that, having been humbly born, he had made himself what he was, he had never ceased to be ashamed of the stable-yard. And as he felt himself to be degraded by that from which he had sprung, so did he think that the only whitewash against such dirt was to be found in the aggrandizement of his daughter and the nobility of her children. He had perhaps been happier than he deserved, he might have sold her to some lord who would have scorned her after a while and despised himself. As it was, the Marquis, who was a son-in-law, was a man whom upon the whole he could well trust. Lord George had indeed made one little error in regard to Mrs. Houghton, but that had passed away and would not probably be repeated. Of all those closely concerned in the coming of Popenjoy, the father seemed to bear the greatness of the occasion with the most modesty. When the dean congratulated him, he simply smiled and expressed a hope that Mary would do well in her troubles. Poor Mary's welfare had hitherto been almost lost in the solicitude for her son. "'She can't but do well now,' said the dean, who of all men was the most sanguine. "'She is thoroughly healthy, and nothing has been amiss.' Uh, "'We must be very careful, that's all,' said the marquis. Hitherto he had not brought his tongue to speak of his son as Popenjoy and did not do so for many a day to come. That an heir had been born was very well, but of late the name of Popenjoy had not been sweet to his ears. Nothing had gone amiss, and nothing did go amiss. When it was decided that the young Marchioness was to nurse her own baby, a matter which Mary took into her own hands with a very high tone, the old Marchioness became again a little troublesome. She had her memories about it all in her own time, how she had not been able to do, as Mary was doing. She remembered all that, and how unhappy it had made her. But she remembered also that, had she done so for Popenjoy, Sir Henry would have insisted on three pints of porter. Then Mary rebelled altogether, and talked of drinking nothing but tea, and would not be brought to consent even to bitter beer, without a great deal of trouble. But through it all the mother throve, and the baby throve, 
and when the bonfires had been all burned and the bells had been all rung and the child had been shown to such tenants and adherents and workmen as desired to see him the family settled down to a feeling of permanent satisfaction and then came the christening now in spite of the permanent satisfaction there were troubles troubles of which the marquis became conscious very soon and which he was bound to communicate to his sister troubles of which the dean was unfortunately cognizant and of which he would speak and with which he would concern him much to the annoyance of the marquis the will which the late man had made was a serious temporary embarrassment there was no money with which to do anything the very bed on which the mother lay with her baby belonged to jack de baron they were absolutely drinking jack de baron's port wine and found when the matter came to be considered that they were making butter from jack de baron's cows this could not be long endured jack who was now bound to have a lawyer of his own had very speedily signified his desire that the family should be put to no inconvenience and had declared that any suggestion from the marquis as to the house in town or that in the country would be a law to him but it was necessary that everything should be valued at once and either purchased or given up to be sold to those who would purchase it there was however no money and the marquis who hated the idea of borrowing was told that he must go among the money-lenders then the dean proposed that he and miss tallowax between them might be able to advance what was needed the marquis shook his head and said nothing the proposition had been very distasteful to him then there came another proposition but it will be right in the first place to explain that the great question of godfather and godmother had received much attention his royal highness the duke of windsor had signified through young lord brabazon that he would stand as one of the sponsors the honour had been very great and had of course been accepted at the moment the dean had hankered much after the office but had abstained from asking with a feeling that should the request be refused a coolness would be engendered which he himself would be unable to repress it would have filled him with delight to stand in his own cathedral as godfather to the little popenjoy but he abstained and soon heard that the duke of dunstable who was a distant cousin was to be the colleague of his royal highness he smiled and said nothing of himself but thought that his liberality might have been more liberally remembered just at this time miss tallowax arrived at the deanery and on the next morning the dean came over to manor cross with a proposition from that lady she would bestow twenty thousand pounds immediately upon popenjoy and place it for instant use in the father's hands on condition that she might be allowed to stand as godmother we could not consent to accept the money said the marquis very gravely why not mary is her nearest living relative in that generation as a matter of course she will leave her money to mary or her children unless she be offended nothing is so common as for old people with liberal hearts to give away the money which they must soon leave behind them a more generous creature than my old aunt doesn't live very generous but i am afraid we cannot accept it after all it is only an empty honour i would not ask it for myself because i knew how you might be situated but i really think you might gratify the old lady twenty thousand pounds is an important sum and would be so useful just at present this was true but the father at the moment declined the dean however who knew his man determined that the money should not be lost and communicated with mr knox mr knox came down to manor cross and held a long consultation at which both the dean and lady sarah were present let it be granted said the dean that it is a foolish request 
but are you justified in refusing twenty thousand pounds offered to Popenjoy? Certainly, said Lady Sarah, if the twenty thousand pounds is a bribe. But it is no bribe, Lady Sarah, said Mr. Knox. It is not unreasonable that Miss Tallowax should give her money to her great-nephew, nor is it unreasonable that she should ask for this honour, seeing that she is the child's great-aunt. There was a strong opposition to Miss Tallowax's liberal offer, but in the end it was accepted. The twenty thousand pounds was important, and after all the godmother could do no lasting injury to the child. Then it was discovered that the offer was clogged with a further stipulation. The boy must be christened Tallowax. To this father and mother and aunts all objected, swearing that they would not subject their young Popenjoy to so great an injury, till it was ascertained that the old lady did not insist on Tallowax as a first name, or even as a second. It would suffice that Tallowax should be inserted among others. It was at last decided that the boy should be christened Frederick Augustus Tallowax. Thus he became Frederick Augustus Tallowax Germain, commonly to be called by the Queen's courtesy, Lord Popenjoy. The christening itself was not very august, as neither the royal duke nor his fellow attended in person. The dean stood proxy for the one, and Canon Holdenau for the other. Mary by this time was able to leave her room, and was urgent with her husband to take her up to London. Had she not been very good, and done all that she was told, except in regard to the porter? And was it not manifest to everybody that she would be able to travel to St. Petersburg and back if such a journey were required? Her husband assured her that she would be knocked up before she got half-way. "'But London isn't a tenth part of the distance,' said Mary, with a woman's logic. Then it was settled that on May 20th she should be taken with her baby to Munster Court. The following are a few of the letters of congratulation which she received during the period of her convalescence. Grosvenor Place. My dear Marchioness, of course I have heard all about you from time to time, and of course I have been delighted. In the first place we none of us could grieve very much for that unfortunate brother of yours. Really, it was so very much better for everybody that Lord George should have the title and property, not to talk of all the advantage which the world expects from a young and fascinating Lady Brotherton. I am told that the scaffolding is already up in St. James Square. I drove through the place the other day, and bethought myself how long it might be before I should receive the honour of a card telling me that on such and such a day the Marchioness of Brotherton would be at home. I should not suggest such a thing, but for a dearly kind expression in your last letter. But the baby, of course, is the first object. Pray tell me what sort of baby it is. Two arms and two legs, I know, for even a young Lord Popenjoy is not allowed to have more but of his special graces you might send me a catalogue, if you have as yet been allowed pen and paper. I can believe that a good deal of mild tyranny would go on with those estimable sisters, and that Lord George would be anxious. I beg his pardon, the Marquis. Don't you find this second change in your name very perplexing, particularly in regard to your linen? All your nice wedding things will have become wrong so soon. And now I can impart a secret. There are promises of a little giblet, of course it is premature to speak with certainty, but why shouldn't there be a little giblet as well as a little popenjoy? Only it won't be a giblet as long as dear old Lord Gosling can keep the gout out of his stomach. They say that in anger at his son's marriage he has forsworn champagne, and confines himself to two bottles of claret a day. 
but giblet who is the happiest young man of my acquaintance says that his wife is worth it all and so our friend the captain is a millionaire what will he do wasn't it an odd will i couldn't be altogether sorry for i have a little corner in my heart for the captain and would have left him something myself if i had anything to leave i really think he had better marry his old love i like justice and that would be just he would do it to-morrow if you told him it might take me a month of hard work how much is it he gets i hear such various sums from a hundred thousand down to as many hundreds nevertheless the will proves the man to have been mad as i always said he was i suppose you'll come to munster court till the house in the square be finished or will you take some furnished place for a month or two munster court is small but it was very pretty and i hope i may see it again kiss the little popenjoy for me and believe me to be dear lady brotherton your affectionate old friend g montacute jones the next was from their friend the captain himself dear lady brotherton i hope it won't be wrong in me to congratulate you on the birth of your baby i do so with all my heart i hope that some day when i am an old fogey i may be allowed to know him and remind him that in old days i used to know his mother i was down at matter cross the other day but of course on such an occasion i could not see you i was sent for because of that strange will but it was more strange to me that i should so soon find myself in your house it was not very bright on that occasion i wonder who was surprised most by the will you or i mary when she read this declared to herself she ought not to have been surprised at all how could any one be surprised by what such a man as that might do he had never seen me as far as i know till he met me at rudham i did not want his money though i was poor enough i don't know what i shall do now but i shan't go to Perham. mrs jones says you will soon be in town i hope i may be allowed to call believe me always most sincerely yours john de baron both these letters gave her pleasure and both she answered to all mrs jones inquiries she gave very full replies and enjoyed her jokes with her old friend she hinted that she did not at all intend to hurry the men at st james square and that certainly she would be found in munster court till the men had completed their work as to what their young friend would do with his money she could say nothing she could not undertake the commission though perhaps that might be best and so on her note to jack was very short she thanked him heartily for his good wishes and told him the day on which she would be in munster court then in a postscript she said that she was very very glad that he had inherited the late lord's money the other letter offended her as much as those two had pleased her it offended her so much that when she saw the handwriting she would not have read it but that curiosity forbade her to put it on one side it was from adelaide houghton and as soon as she opened it there was a sparkle of anger in her eyes which perhaps none of her friends had ever seen there this letter was as follows dear lady brotherton will you not at length allow bygones to be bygones what can a poor woman do more than beg pardon and promise never to be naughty again is it worth while that we who have known each other so long should quarrel about what really amounted to nothing it was but a little foolish romance the echo of a past feeling a folly if you will but innocent i own my fault and put on the sackcloth and ashes of confession and after that surely you will give me absolution and now having made my apology which i trust will be accepted pray let me congratulate you on all your happiness the death of your poor brother-in-law of course we have all expected mr houghton had heard a month before that it was impossible that he should live 
of course we all feel that the property has fallen into much better hands and i am so glad that you have a boy dear little popenjoy do do forgive me so that i may have an opportunity of kissing him i am at any rate your affectionate old friend adelaide houghton affectionate old friend serpent toad nasty degraded painted jezebel forgive her no never not though she were on her knees she was contemptible before but doubly contemptible in that she could humble herself to make an apology so false so feeble and so fawning it was thus that she regarded her correspondent's letter could any woman who knew that love-letters had been written to her husband by another woman forgive that other we are all conscious of trespassers against ourselves whom we especially bar when we say our prayers forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them who trespass against us excepting jones who has committed the one sin that we will not forgive that we ought not to forgive is there not that sin against the holy ghost to justify us this was the sin that mary could not forgive the disgusting woman for to mary the woman was now absolutely disgusting had attempted to take from her the heart of her husband there was a good deal of evidence also against her husband but that she had quite forgotten she did not in the least believe that adelaide was preferred to herself her husband had eyes and could see a heart and could feel an understanding and could perceive she was not in the least afraid as to her husband but nothing on earth should induce her to forgive mrs houghton she thought for a moment whether it was worth her while to show the letter to the marquis and then tore it into fragments and threw the pieces away End of chapter sixty three